I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I was a rugby player. Somebody fired a crossbow from one side and it had gone just in front of the base player's nose. It was well behind me, two or three, and it was stuck in the side of the, was stuck in the, side of the wooden thing, but it killed us. The stage thing requires an absolute commitment, 100% commitment of focus. In the rest of my life, I find that hard. I've lost six or seven notes high, but I've gained about 10 low. I like people that crossed over between music and art and film. We were playing punk clubs at night, and then I was working with psychopaths in the daytime, and I was working with psychopaths at night in clubs. It was really funny. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. So about three years ago, I think it was, it may have been two, but because it's been a, you know, a difficult period, I, I, my years are sort of mixing into one another. But I think it was three years ago, we bumped into each other in Hamburg in an Italian restaurant. That's right. You turned around to me and you said you were going on tour and here's your card send a message, come and see you on tour, which I did. I went to the cantina in Cologne and watched you, and I, I, I'll talk about that later. But what was interesting for me is I turned back to my guests, and one of them, Julian, I went to university with between 1977 and 1980, and he went, oh, my God, that was Fisher's Ed. <laughs> that was John Watts. And I went, yeah, and he went, that was, one, that was my first gig. I loved it. <laughs> and that was in, I think that was in Camden. He said it was in North London. He couldn't actually identify exactly where it was around that. Dingwalls. Uh, Dingwalls. That was it. That's what he said. Yeah, it was around that era. What was brilliant then is that we went into a conversation about the era in which we grew up, which yeah. formed us in many ways. And so I want to sort of, I have to take you right back, but I want to talk about that era in, in specifically during this. But really, I also want to talk about how you were brought up and how your, what your parents installed in you 
and really what you took from them and also what you ignored from them. Because for me, this was really an impactful period of my life mm. with my parents. So I just wondered what your upbringing was like. Well, it was, I was, I come from the village, which is outside the military academy at Sanders. So the village, well, Sanders Towns is about 30,000 village now, um, college town. So um, my father, uh, was um, between business and military. There's a lot of military in my family all the way back. Soldiers and singers and performers in my on my father's side. Um, and my mum's side is more sort of country um, area. But um, my mum was a my mum was a primary school teacher. And my dad, for most of my you know once uh, most of my sort of childhood was uh, a motor insurance underwriter. But he was also a liberal politician. Were they, yeah. were they present in your life? And I mean that in the sense that I had a father who was physically present, but he wasn't present. And that had that also, you know, naturally had an impact on, on me uh, later. But were they actually present in your life as parents around you, supportive and all the things that we imagine and not always are true? Yeah, <laughs> they were. I mean, my dad was working in London, but he was like... Whenever he came home, his, his big thing was the kids. He used to spend a weekend with his kids because he'd leave at like six in the morning and get home at eight at night. And it was a big thing. What annoyed my mother was my dad was like one of the kids. She wanted a John Wayne, my mum. So in what way was he like the kids? Well, he just, he was, he was very funny and very playful. Um, my mum used to like driving. So we'd go to the seaside in a, in a mini. My mum would drive. Me and my sister would be sitting in the front seat under what was not a seatbelt in those days. And my dad would be covered with teddy bears and things in the back, making us laugh. Now, socially and politically, the 70s and 80s were, um, they were our formative years, I'm presuming. Yeah. I'm saying as, but they were definitely my formative years. And, and I think from your music, you see that they are as well. Um, the 70s were a period of social upheaval. Um, they were a period of uh, where the where the workers, in this sort of general term, were put upon. Um, and uh, the 80s were in many ways, although they're sort of always looked at in this sort of glamorous, wonderful era of, you know, the most amazing music and all this stuff, mm -hmm. but they were shit. I mean, there was racism, homophobia, sexism, you know, there was such uh, political and social upheaval, it was unbelievable. So what during that era formed you, do you think? What events formed you? What, in the 70s and 80s? Yeah. Well, I mean, for instance, um, hitchhiking in America at 21. I went to America with, with a, another guy who ended up being in the band and I spent all my money in the first four days and I was there nine weeks. And so having had a relatively cozy and friendly and encouraging upbringing, I suddenly had to work out how to get across to the other side of America for $7 and then busked to make money to come back. That was quite formative. And then also my training in um, clinical So what happened, just to take to, to go into that then, if you're, you know, if you actually have no money and you, you mm. have to busk, you have to meet and make contact with people, don't you? Even yeah. if, it's, if it's on a musical level, yes, you know. Is or on a personal level. So what, what stories do you have of that time? What do you oh, actually remember? Um, well, I remember arriving, I, I was busking on Fisherman's Wharf, opposite Alcatraz. 
uh, at that stage. And um, I'd done, well, I think I'd done two years of, I'd done two years of university by then. So I was doing music and making music. That was quite good. But two of the most interesting things were, I was a rugby player. While I was at, while I was at, in, while I was busking down there, I met some people who went to the University of California, Berkeley, and they were playing American football. And uh, I was looking at what they were doing and the, they were, their kickers were kicking things over the, over the posts. And uh, I said, that's easy. They said, no, it's not easy. We get paid lots of money. I said, it is easy. I'm a, I'm a rugby fullback. I can do that any day of the week. And they said, can you? And I said, yeah. And so I did. They said, Jesus, you can get a scholarship over here for doing that. And also tackling people, they had lots of gear and armor. I didn't, I could knock people over without armors. That was quite funny, but there was things like that. After that, I hitchhiked all the way up the West coast of the States, all the way up to Seattle and across to Spokane and all over the place. And when I was there, I stayed in a house. The other memory, I stayed in a house with a lot of Vietnam war veterans, which was quite influential. They were only two or three years older than me, but they'd been to Vietnam and that was, they were like a hundred years older than me. And there was a guy, I remember, underneath the wooden veranda. Every time a car or any kind of machine turned up, he just dived under it and hid. And so I had those kind of experiences. And I had a lift with a very mad hippie art teacher and she was completely off her head on drugs and ill. And so I drove up the 101 myself with a gear, with a, an old column shift um, car, which I had to keep a large orange bottle full of water on to keep in gear. So those kind of things were quite interesting. That was the American thing. Then I came back to college for a bit and um and we were playing punk clubs at night and then i was working with psychopaths in the daytime in mental hospitals as a clinical psychologist and i was working with psychopaths at night in clubs it was really funny and God then God. we went straight from that to, to to doing very very successful it was very odd i didn't do a no i didn't do a normal formative 20 i didn't do i didn't do like i don't know 20 to 25 like most other people yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there because in America, you were with yeah. Stephen, I presume, in America, because yes, you met him at university, yeah. Yeah, Steve Scrawny, yeah. Yeah, so in in America, by meeting these uh, Vietnam vets mm. who were, as you say, just a couple of years older, but their experiences yeah. uh, were far more uh, traumatised than, than your experience would have been, what, yeah. what did they relay to you and how did that impact you in terms of understanding the world a bit better well i think um consequence i mean coming from a military family i was at the i was the head chorister at the royal military academy in sandhurst and when if you're a head boy in that choir it's for a start the singing's unbelievable secondly every column every pillar in that cathedral is covered with a dead of the first world war the different regiments every and i knew lots of them by heart because you'd read them when you're reading binos and stuff when people were doing sermons but the point about that was I was always very aware of um, things military, the consequence of things like the First World War. And so therefore, when I, I tied that across, obviously, when I met the, all the Vietnam War vets, I mean, at that stage, um, I mean, that was only, well, let's see, that was, 70, when was that, 73, 74. I mean, that was only 75. It was ridiculous. I mean, it's, it, um, there was still um, many of the... Um, First World War veterans around and all sorts of stuff. The only thing was, it was a bit like being in um, one of the famous, um, it felt a little bit like being in the deer hunter because it was so weird. Their reality was so weird. And for instance, they say, you haven't got any boots. You haven't got any boots. And we were going out, I was picking fruit and making money up there, I think. I said, what do you mean I'm going to boots? They said, there's snakes out there. There's snakes out there. I didn't believe them. Then I, then I saw slithery things around the place. So 
it was bizarre. It, it felt an, an unreal world. I mean, you mentioned clinical psychology and working mm. in clinical psychology. What yep. did that uh, allow you to understand about yourself? Um, I think, I don't know. I, I didn't go in for that reason. Most, a lot of people who go to study psychology want to find out about themselves. I wanted a sandwich course that would allow me to um, do all the music I wanted to do. So therefore I did the course over four and a, over four and a half years. I did the usual degree, but I'd worked with psychopaths. I'd worked with severely disturbed 16 year old kids and I'd worked on a venture playground. So I was ready to go out and work. It was, it was a working degree and it was a way, it was the way of financing my music that was interesting. I wasn't looking to find out stuff about myself. I was looking to see a weirder world. I mean, I, I, I found working with the psychopaths for six months just extraordinarily stimulating. I Why? Wanted well, for the most part, there were psycho psychopaths, sociopaths. They were extremely creative people, very much like me. And in their attitudes to things, it's just that there was an element of self-control that disappeared for about 5% of their lives. And that's when they got into trouble. Apart from that, they were great fun. Great but casual. isn't that true about politicians as well? Aren't, you know, aren't, aren't you, I, politicians, people in the public eye, often, mm. I mean, I'm not anymore really, but the people in the public eye are, have a sociopathic side to them. I mean, you know, I only got to say the word Trump and then we, you know, we yeah, can confirm yeah. that. But I don't think it's just the 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 peak of, of the sociopaths. I mm. think it's like a, across the board. So isn't it also something where you can understand these people, I don't know if you understand them a little better, but you can see what motivates them and you can sort of understand them in that way. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's, there's a, as, as with performers, there's attention seeking insecurity. If you have to need, I mean, I, I'm more comfortable playing in front of 20,000 people than I am going into a party where I don't know anybody. I've just always been like, I'm quite shy in that sense. I, I find that, you know. Why are those two things different? Um, well, I, I think it's the, the element of performance and entertainment. When we, one thing that shaped, again, my performing, you were referring earlier to those shows in the late, in the seventies and early eighties. My first, um, big major tour, we, we supported Wilco Johnson and the Solid Senders after he'd left Dr. Feelgood. And he was in his, his, um, stage persona was quite a psychotic one. I found that very interesting. The pe my heroes were not rock musicians ever. My heroes were people who approached, were poets or were Andy Warhol or the nearest thing to music, I suppose, was the, was the Velvet Underground. I, I like people that crossed over between music and art and film and were artists in the almost, avant-garde would be the wrong word, certainly quite a bohemian culture was what I was interested in. Um, when you go up on stage, I mean, I always remember my, my ex-wife, we were joking about this we, um, when we were going out to dinner together recently, and she said, she just remembers when we used to play places up in the West End in London, when I was 20, um, I was very noisy on a stage, but she always remembers trying to get me to settle down enough to eat a burger in the Swiss center before, before she went back. And I was always thought, I'm gonna lose my voice. She said, no, you're not, you know, and all these kind of bits and pieces. I think that the stage, the, um, the stage thing requires an absolute commitment, 100% commitment of focus. In the rest of my life, I find that hard. 
One thing that my um, family and close people will say about me is that's annoying. Many performers don't stop performing when they come off stage. Um, and they don't stop attention seeking when they come off stage. And they don't stop monopolizing the conversation when they come off stage. And it's a lifelong thing for me to try and get a bit of a handle on that one. But basically, the stage persona is basically me. It's just a, a little amplified, really. Were you were you then comfortable at the beginning when um, Fisher said um, achieved success? Was that measure of fame in any sense comfortable, or did you find it find it alienating? Um, I didn't assess it very well at the time. I mean, in a period of two years, we went from nothing to selling about two million albums. And my story was at that point, people kept saying, you're a rock, it's a rock star. And I just really didn't like that label. I wanted to be known as an artist. I always thought that we were somewhere on the spectrum of art. We weren't high art, but we were somewhere there. And all the cliched things to do with that, I was kicked against, which is why I left it at the point it was enormous. And and I've been never been near that sort of level since because most people have a natural career trajectory that goes up, stays at a peak and comes down. I've jumped out of it on many occasions, changed names, done lots of things. And I mean, musically, musically, I've never compromised business. I'm a hopeless. I've had eight managers, all of which quite like me in historically, but they think I'm unmanageable. And your son is your manager today. Well, he was. No, he was. My, he stopped about two years ago, just before. So COVID. he was the seventh. <laughs> he was the best. He was the best by a mile. The point is that with him, in the end, you can't have father and son working together in that sense. I know Weller did with his dad, but the type of characters we are, Eric, Eric is a super, super sensitive person. And I said to him in the end, was it just me that put you off it? He said, no, no, no. It, it, it was a business that he couldn't feel comfortable in. He stepped in to, to save, well, not just save it, but to build the career up again, which he did. Until COVID started, he was doing very well. But at the moment, I'm still forming a new team to try and make it work as well. Now, you mentioned um, the Velvet Underground. You mentioned um, Lou Reed. And obviously, yes. that sort of John Cale, Fluxus, you know, yes. art area is, is an important thing. And you talked about poetry and that yours is a combination between yes. poetry, musicianship and performance. Yes. Um, do you think that... Well, words have obviously played an incredible role in your life. When when was the first time that you really understood what your voice is? And I mean that in the sense I'm a writer I mean, and voice, I know what voice, voice is decided. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I've discovered overall, first of all, is that I'm I'm much more of a writer than I'm a musician, really. I mean, I can sing well, I can play, but that's not the point. Um, um, what's strange for me is that 95% of the music of the stuff that I've sold has been to people who don't understand the words, and I'm a word person which is a little bit of a contradiction in terms. Um, I always liked, I was, as a kid, they were worried about me because I observed and wrote about it rather than joined in. I never joined in. I'd be on the edge of the playground. I'd be on the edge of there, unless there was any kind of sport, which I was good at, in which case I'd watch them for a bit, be invited in, smack the ball around the place, impress their parents and run off. But, you know, um, basically I was, I just loved observing things and writing things down. Um, when everybody else in their 11, 12 year old were writing, they asked to write an essay or do something, I'd do it, but I would prefer to do it in rhyme, for instance. Um, at the age of 15, when we had a choice of to specialise in subjects, I went to a funny, funny modern grammar school, which became a big comprehensive school that became lots of things. My English teacher said to me, 
well, you're going to, are you going to do, you obviously do English literature for A level. And I said, no, I said, I'm not going to do English. I'm not going to do music. I'm not going to do art because I don't want anybody to teach me anything. I want to do maths, maths, physics, chemistry, and computers that I don't like, which is what I did. And she said, John, she said, you're the only kid I've ever taught, or I think will be a writer. That's and amazing. That was, that was a really great affirmation at that stage, to be honest. That was 15 then. Yeah, I mean, we search for confirmation in our lives yeah. because it does yeah. help propel us forward. And, you know, I sort of mentioned I'm a writer as well. And if I get far in a competition or I win a competition these days, mm. you know, I mean, it gives me the impetus to say to myself, OK, sure. one day I'm, uh, this is going to work. And um, as a writer of lyrics and performing to an audience which has English as a second language, which you mentioned, um, and there is sort of a dichotomy there, is some sort of yeah. weird thing going on there. Um, where do you get the confirmation from, or is it for you something that is so within you today that you don't need it anymore? I don't need it for that. But what is interesting, it has been an issue for me in the past. For instance, um, when, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, use, the, the use of lyrics, I believe that lyrics and songs, that, that basically most songs shouldn't make any sense as poetry or as writing separate from songs. They should only work, the best songs work just with the music. So I've always felt I'm too, much too wordy for songs, generally speaking, and you, get, you tend to get more wordy. The affirmation is based on the idea, people who study, they, if, the, if English is their second language, they look into the lyrics much more careful, carefully than the English or the Americans do. And they look for much more. And also Mike's impression, yours probably too, because you've, you've worked right across the European spectrum, is that people take, if you like, pop culture um, as part of the art spectrum, much more, much more than English people do. There's a big separation between different areas. Whereas again, that you get serious, serious journalists who will talk to you about pop lyrics. But, it, but essentially, I know I can write. I'm quite happy with that. My thing's been the other way up. And in in as much as I tend to have put writing so much down the middle of the, my life, that my my lesson is yes, I know I can do that. Um, I've been trying to get better at <laughs> get better at a personal life. <laughs> that's always a difficult one it's a for anyone. I don't think we should yeah. go there. <laughs> um, the, the, what do you wish to, uh, or what have you always wished to achieve um, with your words, with your lyrics? Because there's always been such a strong message in them. Mm -hmm. Well, for me, lyrics shouldn't tell people what to think, but they should make people think about certain areas. Um, overall, what I want from my words is, and the same with my music, many people of my generation complain about streaming, they complain about that. I'm in a, I can really be valid because I'm not rich. The people that are very, very rich moan about this. The, the, all, the, all my contemporaries who've made millions live next door to Sting. Um, that I don't do that. I live in a little flat, which I still don't know. So I've, I can justifiably say this. I'm very happy. What I want above all things for my words and music is for as many people as possible to listen to it. I don't care if they pay for it. it doesn't matter a monkeys to me. The, the idea that they that, that something that you write is, well, the whole principle of art, if we go right the way back to the top, art for me in an ideal world is a unique view of the world from somebody. And if you're very lucky, 
your your well your view appeals to a universal audience and that's what for me it's all about the era in which you began your career as it were in in mm. in music um was sort of the the punk era where the yes. punk era felt like an era where it was probably a lot easier to go and gig and to be crap at the beginning and to build your talent on stage um, than it is today. What was it like then? And what do you feel that actually gave you as a performer? Because it's very different back then to a lot of performance today. What's very odd about the punk thing? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready get 30, ready get 20 20, 20 ready get 20 20, ready get 15 15, 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Was that, first of all, what differentiated Fisher's Ed? We were art punks. We were like XTC or you we were, you know, that sort of area or talking heads. We were more arty punk types. The thing that was funny was performance as such was frowned upon, if you remember, by the punks. It was frowned upon to be able to play a bit. It was frowned upon to perform. My heroes, the people I used to go and watch as a 15-year-old, I, I went to the rock concerts, but I went to watch George Melly whenever I can go and, could go and see him. Um, because I like, I, I have a connection. I've got a, a second cousin, a great uncle, who was a, a big star pre-war in the musical, a guy called Teddy Brown. And he used to play a drum kit and a xylophone at the same time. He weighed, he weighed 24 stone. And if you blow me up with a pump, I look like him, except for the beard. And um, I've always been keen on that. And I've always been very keen on the bohemian culture of Berlin, where you have performers standing up against terrible political ideologies. I like the kind of slightly sleazy side. And one thing that relates to everything you've said in the, in the interview is, I always felt so abundantly normal. You'd see all these weird people. I like the weird people. I like Bowie when he's being weird. Peter Gabriel when he dressed up as a cancer cell. And anything like that really appealed to me. And I thought I'm too normal. What's happened to me over a period of time is I've found I'm not special, but I'm not normal. And I'm just not. And I wish I'd have known that when I was 25. Also, I wish I'd known I was good looking when I was 25. It would have been a great advantage. <laughs> when you say when you say that, isn't it the most, isn't it the people that think they're the most normal that are the most abnormal? Maybe that's it. Maybe. And also remember, I've been working with psychopaths and people attacking me. When, when we played punk clubs and these other bands say, oh, this guy tried to burn my ankle with a cigarette. You think, you pillock. Today, I fought off a bloke in a kitchen who was trying to put a broken bottle in my eye. Do you know what I mean? I just thought, this is, I tell you what, that was quite interesting. That's a very relevant point. I found it hard to take a lot of the 
the showbiz and stuff seriously because I've been working with serious people. I mean, even the background I talked about, I've, I've spent time with Vietnam War vets. I've been dealing with psychopaths. I've been dealing with kids that were, when I was only 22 on venture playgrounds, kids that were 15, 16, that would steal everything of mine. So in, 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 in the era of, of not so PC-dom, we I, I was in a position where I, I would be shaking a, a black kid upside down who was 14 to shake my money out of his hair. And it was quite acceptable and he didn't mind. I went back to playing darts and pool with him afterwards. I mean, that was just the way it was. And also we played football with these big 16 year old kids who were absolute hooligans. And the only way we could actually get, could relate to them was kick the shit out of them because they respected that when we played football. Oh, we, you know, they'd, they'd get nasty with the younger kids and we'd sort of be playing with these big kids. I sort of trip a very large guy up and he'd go sprawling across the, he said, you can't do that, sir. I said, of course I, of course I can. You're a big thug. He said, you just kick me. I said, yeah. That's what happens. That's the way it is. And I, I did very well actually up there. I, I was I was promoted. When I got took the job, I actually took it when I came back from America, I couldn't take reality. Uxbridge just didn't have it. So I went up and worked in London and Adventure Playgrounds in Camden. And what happened was they asked me what I was studying. So I said psychology, right? I didn't tell them I hadn't got a degree. They didn't take me out because I looked older. They put me in, they put me uh they made me an assistant to start with, and then they made me a playground leader. By the time I left, I was I was 22 i was i was supervising four or five different adventure playgrounds it was ridiculous absolutely ridiculous and I, then i went back to university afterwards and I, by the time I, when i left uni, i left university we signed a record contract four days after i left university so it was very weird now don't worry i'm not going to stop the interview i just want to ask you to subscribe because it helps me and it allows you to know about the interviews when they're uploaded on the YouTube channel. Okay, back to the interview. With Starbucks Holiday Blend for Nespresso Virtuo, now exclusively at Target, there are even more ways to share the joy. Savor every smooth and festive sip all holiday season with friends and family at home to fill every indulgent day with cheer. If you were yeah. in a band in that era, and... and uh, you know, and, and particularly the punk era, there's, yeah, yeah. there was, I mean, as someone who was in the audience, there was violence, yeah. but oh, often yeah, exactly. there was violence on stage oh, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah but the, the band used to get upset with me because I used to like provoking it. I don't know whether you went to venues like the Music Machine in London ever. Yeah. The Music Machine in London, for those, for the uninitiated, you had basically, there was two lots of stairs either side of the stage. And if people were sort of leering at me, I'd, come on in, come on in. And they go, what's he? No, 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 stop doing that. Come on. You know, the, the secret is not to jump off the stage because I've had beaten up, been beaten up twice by jumping off the stage. Very bad move. We've got two incidents which were dangerous, though. We were in Greece in 1980. We were standing on stage. I was playing. It was a warm night with just a pair of Rupert Bear trousers playing, playing like this. And suddenly the bass player went white. We didn't know what had happened. And then the police started running around everywhere. It was a festival made out of um, corrugate. It was a an amphitheater made out of corrugated iron for the night. So it was very urban. But on the side, you've got great wooden posts, which you had the um, PA system attached to. Anyway, after examination, I was wondering what the hell was going on with the police. And uh, the bass player said, oh God. I was obviously about, say, three meters in front of him. Somebody would fired a crossbow from one side and it had gone just in front of the bass player's nose. He was well behind me, two or three. And it was stuck in the side of the, was stuck in the, side of the wooden thing, but it killed us. And also in those days, I remember playing Manchester, uh, Newcastle Mayfair Ballroom and there was lots of skinheads and there was 
reggae people and there was bikers and they're all they're all sort of big heaving in front of me and i said god kill one another you're not listening properly you scumbag what i failed to notice was there was um a balcony above us i didn't know that because i didn't see it because the light was bad and about halfway through our set i was so lucky this huge metal table was thrown from about 25 feet it went through the stage in front of the drummer behind me i mean that would have killed me it's ridiculous and also i got chased through a kitchen by a, a mad Luxembourg um, cook on acid with a with a big cookery knife who, who claimed I was looking at his girlfriend during the set. And I actually did the, I had to do the cartoon diving out the toilet window to escape. I've done it once. <laughs> and also my biggest claim to fame is that people thought that I wasn't a psychologist. They thought I was a psychopath. And the Stranglers who were assigned to on UA, I mean, I talked to John Jack about it. They thought we were nuts. They kept well clear of us because our first gig in Berlin, we played with it. We had a student support band. And during the support band, this lunatic was screaming at them all the way through and put them right off. And they had to leave the stage. So we came on, we did two numbers. This person was still screaming. <laughs> so I said, look, if you don't shut up, the next time I'm going to come down, I'm going to pull your head off. And so he's going, yeah. So you, you know what the theatre where you get three levels and you hear the wood. So I'm halfway through a song, throw the guitar down, bonk, and you can hear me running down. <laughs> so I stretched him around the thing, beat him up. All his mates joined in and started pulling my legs off and hitting me with bits of the bits of seats. Then all the crowd joined in. Anyway, I went back and I forgot. I'd done verse one. I went back and did verse three. But those kind of incidents went down in folklore in the uh, United Artists. And so I was known as a bloke who was always involved in fights. So it's quite, we got a great film from the, what was it, was it the ICA? Yeah, I got attacked by a bloke with a Coke can and, and we had a we had colour film that was actually, Tim Pope lost it. It was um colour film where the bloke had cut my eyebrow with Coke can and my, my roadie was sponging off the blood on the stage. <laughs> but the most day I got hit with, a, I got hit with a peach very hard at Reading Festival once as well. That was, that was nasty. <laughs> Sorry, these, these silly stories. I don't know if you mind this, Steve. No, no, I mean, God, who doesn't love a good story? I mean, I think that's that's the reason why they happen sometimes. It's because we, you know, yeah. we have them to hold with us for our lives, which is which is brilliant. You meet, mentioned George Melly earlier, yeah, and yeah. when you told me those stories, it reminded me of something I saw with him. I think it was on a chat show called Parkinson in, in yeah, the 70s, yeah. where he was set upon in the street. And what he did instead of running away or reacting he just turned to them and i think he spoke in latin if my memory yeah, is correct yeah he spoke in latin and said something to them which confused them all obviously and then they just thought oh my god he's more of a nutter than we are what, and they what, ran off and what you're telling me is sort of a little bit similar <laughs> yes the thing is if you well the rule of thumb is i mean i, was, I did a bit of boxing as well the rule of thumb is if you're a big bloke some the big another big bloke will come in the bar and try and beat you up if you're a little bloke then a big bloke will come and beat you up but if you're a nutter they'll keep a real safe distance i've got a good nutter story if you've got a quick moment oh yeah in dundee playing in dundee a very tough place that look when i went there i thought my god it's made of kellogg's boxes and when we went in i'd come out after the show and i saw the most frightening sight i was i was basically having a strip down wash my top and i was in the toilet so i could see the mirror in from the mirror came three Scots guys, 15 feet wide and only about five feet tall. And they just moved. I thought, mm, this doesn't look too good. I'd got checky trousers on that looked a little bit like tartan trousers. 
and they were sort of pointing, yeah, yeah, take this to pick. I thought, oh my God, I'm going to die. The worst place in the world to be thumped is a toilet. Everything is hard and shiny and nasty. So I thought, what am I going to do? And I turned around slowly and said, I'm terribly sorry, these, these trousers have got actually nothing to do with the big school, nothing to do with the big school store. No, they're just checking, they're like, river bed trousers. Oh my God, oh my God, I don't know what to do. And they were like, and I kept doing it and I gradually got past them out and legged it. And I've never been so scared in my life, but yes, I gave them <laughs> the Rupert Bear speech. The Rupert Bear speech, yeah, that, that, should, that should make anyone run away. The, um, you mentioned Sting, the police. Uh, yeah. You've shared the stage with people like yeah. Peter Gabriel, with, with Bob yeah. Marley. Um, is there ever a sort of exchange in terms of you gain or you learn something from these people and they learn something from you? And I just wondered to turn it on its head, what do these people learn from you? Because often <laughs> that's a surprising thing that is true. It's a, I think it's a reinforcement that the way they've done their career is sensible and mine isn't. <laughs> My one of my friends, John, one of my friends, we do we also tour with Dire Straits and a personal friend of mine because he lived near me was John Ilsley. And John always said, Oh my God. He said, You make it so difficult. If things are going well, you wreck them. And if things are going badly, you make them better again, then you wreck them. I don't know what it is. It's a uh, I don't my... believe that I don't believe that because I think there is something else about your career which is much more positive. Now your shit with money. I mean, yeah. that's obvious. And, you know yeah. what I mean? That's that's something, uh, 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 <laughs> a different concept. There are people who invest and they're good with money and they make money from money. And that's something that you obviously haven't done. But there are people that manage to stay on an inspired creative path that fulfills them. And yeah. I think that's, that's the thing that's that you thing. really have done. Yeah, yeah. I'm very proud of that. I mean, for instance, even the contemporary, uh, one thing, the, the album that we've just made, I mean, that's the, I think it's about the 25th, original album and for me i listen i don't listen to music i used to listen to much i listen to everything that's new right across the board because i think you need that to be relevant obviously my biggest influence is myself having been at it for a long time but the idea that my what my son instilled in me was he said look all your all your new stuff is important but it's one brick in a monstrous wall and you should be very proud of that wall I mean, the idea that I've been able to keep this going for 42 years, it was ridiculous. I mean, I've owned this flat three times. I don't know it now. <laughs> I've always, I always invest, I'll make a film with it or I do something with it. I, I got a mortgage at the age of 65 last year. It was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the truth is, you know, when we all end up in the grave, what are we going to do? Be buried with our money? Do you know absolutely. what I mean? What, what, yeah, is, what is the choice? You either have, if you have a creative life, the most mm. important thing is to continue that creative life. If you have money and that, and you still can be creative with that money, but it can also restrict you. I mean, I've experienced yeah. that in the past when, you know, as a successful TV presenter a long time ago, um, I think I was at my most uncreative during my most successful period. Mm. I, think, I think that sometimes um, it's difficult. You were talking about affirmation for what you've done. Um, because of leaving Fisher Z in that first year, it was very successful, and then having a court case with management, I never actually got either financial or um, recognition for it, or I, I didn't do the, the huge celebratory We're Famous tours, which gives you a feeling about that. But for me, one of the most, I don't know, the idea of creating something new, the process of doing it and then playing it to people is just extraordinary. 
as long as I can keep ticking, it's fine. And I have my moments. The biggest problem I have when I get when I don't have chance to create as much stuff, I always get fed up when the business goes wrong. I get involved in the business and I'm terrible at it and it upsets me that I get out of it again. And I'm, I have nil patience, which is, the, again, going back to the difference between an offstage personality and an onstage. The thing that makes me good as a performer, I think, is things come out my mouth and out my head without any filter on a stage. And I really am at one with people. Whether If I'm playing to a monstrously big crowd, then I like to think I make each person that's there makes, me, make, makes them feel like they're in a little club and I'm playing to them. And if you're playing in a little club, you, we, we, for instance, did with COVID, we just done two, we did London and we did Manchester last weekend. They were fabulous gigs. You're talking about gigs that normally hold 300 people. You maybe had a hundred, you have a hundred plus there because of COVID restrictions and people not turning out. They were extraordinary gigs. Um, the experience of performance is quite extraordinary. And the, and the, and the writing thing is wonderful. As I say, I'm actively always trying to get out of the business, but I always end up in that as well. Do you write for you or do you write with an audience in mind? Because your audience is incredibly loyal. I mean, I saw that that gig. It actually shocked me uh, because I don't think I've been in an audience that you felt this connection between them and you. And it was an amazing feeling because it had this power to it. Well, the thing about it is that because I've changed names and what I always believed is that you should change name and bit label if you change musical style a bit. And that, that turns out to have been a bit dim. If, if, if I'd have started off as an art person called Trouser Parts, Trouser Parts could have done music, could have done poetry, could have written books, could have made a painting made of his breakfast and it would still be relevant. And these days kids can do that and I love them for it. They, they, their first record will be called Cabbage and then the next one will be called Pandas on Acid. And they, and they follow it. But my career, to answer your question, my career has been difficult to follow. Those that have managed to follow it are keen. Do you write for yourself though, or, for, or with the audience in mind ever? You know, is there an expectation really, when I, you sit I, down? I think, I think I think I write about what affects me and it can be anything. Um, so I suppose it's writing for me really. Some would say my ex-wife and family, for instance, that what, what I write is 100% honest. And what I live is not as 100% honest outside of it. Oh, that's interesting. So that, where, where is the difference? Where is the, where does it depart from each other? Because I can be totally open in my work as an artist, whereas I'm much more protective and much shyer when I'm, when the work, I'm, if you're presenting something to the public, to the world, I mean, my, again, one of my ex-wives used to say, if she wants to know what's going on, she'll listen to the next album. Oh, wow. <laughs> but that is such a compliment. I hope so. I mean, I, in some ways it is. I mean, recently my, my kids will say they love me. I've got five children in their 20s and 30s, all of which are quite happy to speak to me, which is all good. I get on very well with them. They all, all have the same mum, which is amazing in my business. And I still get on with it. I was divorced from their mum, but we still get on very well. But they said, and they had a bit of a, recently some personal stuff that's been out the window and they did they, they said look you're never a hundred percent anywhere except when you're making music and he said no problem dad we know that doesn't yeah, make us love you any less there's an interesting comment from adult children i mean at the beginning we talked about the fact that uh the lyrics the words are one side mm. um the 
performance mm. and the musicianships the musicianship are the other sides the performance as i said when i went to this concert i was uh, i was taken aback by a number of things and one of them was the energy on stage that you yeah. are able to transport um from your playing um now you know i'm 62 you're about 65 i think I'm 66 i'm only 66 oh wow then but i mean this energy is still there to do that yeah. um where where do you think you sort of got this from in terms of building this over the years that a performance can be so strong on stage despite you know being Thank a bit you. older you just do it differently in the same way as your the physical the physical aspects of performance for instance i've lost six or seven notes high but i've gained about 10 low so therefore i do things in slightly different keys but the energy it's it's i think it's about the spirit of the human being really i mean i, I used to do i would do all sorts of things i mean i had a 60 foot lead when we were mucking about when we we're like in 20s and I could run right across the stage, only the way Springsteen does. I'd skid right across the shiny stage on my knees. But I think the inherent life force, if you're lucky, as long as that ticks, I mean, I, you must have met, I've met people in their 80s and 90s that are like children. And I, I really, really hope that both you and I have that capability. I saw such a deterioration in my mother, um, who died relatively recently, and the opposite, my dad died suddenly of cancer, but my God, he was sharp as mustard and a child right to the end. And I really hope that would be my, my thing. But I just think you learn to do it differently. What also, if you came to see us play on say two or three of the dates on the same tour, now what's odd about us and not so much other people, the lighting men and the sound men hate me. It's never the same set, exactly the same thing. I only say what comes into my mind based on the people that are in that room. I don't have any fixed sayings or I don't know what I'm going to say, which upsets the band sometimes. Sometimes if I'm, I stop in the middle of a song if I don't feel like it and explain it to the audience. And again, I've done, I do a lot of solo performance as well. So it's, it's easier when you're solo with a band, it's more difficult. I just think, I mean, I've always been known as Mr. Enthusiasm and I long may that reign really. You don't have uh, a set list in the sense that it's a set set list. No, we have it. We have a set set list, but even for instance, the beginnings and the ends of the songs are not set. And if I don't feel like doing that one, I'll leave it out and bring something else in. What would you do if you went on stage and the audience just went blank? Um, I would. I I think I'd walk off. I'd, I'd probably come off the stage and talk to them, and play in the audience. I do that sometimes. Oh wow. I mean, I think there's, it's one thing that we mentioned there is, I, I'm not nostalgic at all. I like telling stories about the past, but I'm not nostalgic in the sense that everything back then was brilliant and everything no. after that is shit. I don't feel that at all. I feel my I, life I today know. is far more interesting and dynamic than it's ever been. And I get that feeling from you as well. And in a sense, I feel that you're lucky and the reason that you're lucky is that the music business which has changed dramatically over the years um yeah. is so centered around making money touring that actually it plays into your fault oh, it, do, it does do if, if if it wasn't for covid and brexit yes the problem for me is i always thought and what i enjoy doing it's like i have two different brands i have john watts solo who does very different things very noisy i have to say but different things 
next door to a heavy metal uh, band at South by Southwest, we were told to turn down. And as a solo performer, I took that as a great compliment. Sorry, I got confused. I was, I was talking about two different brands, wasn't it? Where did it come from? I lost. I got lost. Sorry, there was a, a yeah, about the music about the music business, and it changed so much that actually you're. Oh yes, the, the thing about the live thing is, I always thought my pension was that because as long as I want to perform or even talk or read or do anything, it would always be there. And the big thing about having a following is there's two things. The downside is sometimes they only want you to do what they associate with a limited period in their lives. It's like wanting to wear, they want to, and I always say to them, look, I'm not, you might, can you wear the same pair of jeans you did when you were 25? And most of them can, don't, can't say yes. Um, I can actually, which is ridiculous. I've, I've re recently, I've lost lots of weight because of being miserable, but apart from that, it's fine. But you say, you know, I'm not a pair of trousers. And so what I will always do, I'll always play and perform a certain proportion of stuff that people really want to hear, because that's fine. I love doing that. But I'll also always give them things that make them think a little bit more as well, you know? And, and so I think, I think that in live performance terms, it should be, it should be an ongoing, it should be an ongoing, but at the moment, it's just so precarious with everything being canceled and moved all the time. We're, but what I am and what the band are is extremely versatile. For instance, we've just, with our German tour that's supposed to be coming up soon, we're still not sure because of the areas what's gonna happen. We've firmed up four out of 12, but I've said to the promoters, look, if you don't get X city, I will turn up with the band because we can, the seven of us, in our in a little in a little bus, and we'll play on a flat back truck on the dock. Sod it. And at that point, the promoters think, "Oh my God, is he really going to do that?" Oh no. And so hopefully, it makes the reality better. I mean, I'll, I'll do. We we can do. We're thinking about doing a guerrilla weekend where we just turn up and do that and play. And for instance, if we wanted to play. If you want to play a big city and the venue can't play and the rules are wrong, you can apply to the, you know, to the students and um, play the university campuses or, or do whatever. So yeah. I, I like that. I like that element. It's the idea of being alternative that I like. I've never sat very well with. I've been signed to seven different multinational record companies in a period of time, and I've successfully fallen out with all of them, which is not good news because I'd be richer if I hadn't. <laughs> yeah, but you know, would you be richer? This is the point. In what know. way would you be richer? There's one thing that I, when I went, when I went in into uh, therapy. So we're going back to this clinical psychologist mm. thing. Mm. Um, I've got a real name, which is Stephen James, and I adopted another name, which was yeah. Steve, Steve Blaine. And they told me, okay, then you know, you are basically a schizophrenic. I was happy that mm -hmm. I only had two personalities rather than thirty-two. But in a yeah. sense, by being Fisher Z, which is essentially John yeah, Watts. It's me, yeah, yeah. Yep. And being John Watts, which is John Watts, mm. and they are different. Um, does that mean <laughs> that you are also a schizophrenic? Yeah, possibly. The thing that upset me, I think, was I mean, obviously, the reason I came up with the name Fisher Z is because it doesn't mean anything. And I thought from the, the old um, you know, the Lacan thing, signifier and signified, the idea that the Fisher's Ed logo name would would only signify the sound of the band. And it did. It was brilliant, but rubbish, because it means that my voice and everything is always tied to that. When I left it and I when I left Fisher's Ed and I did two, two or three solo albums, I was not aware of things like the brand. I didn't understand what the brand was about, wasn't interested. The fact was, I was the brand, but and it's taken me all this time. My son said, look, Dad, he said, look, anything you do, if you decide to whistle down bottles, Call it Fisher's Ed or call it Fisher's Ed Solo. Then people can follow it. I've been the cry. I've been all sorts of things. Paramusic, God knows what else. 
you know? And so, yeah, I, th I think there's a degree of that. I also, my big thing was, okay, I've, we've made it as Fisher Z. I don't see why I can't be equally as universal with John Watts. And I, and I proved very successfully the power of a brand. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, I wish you well, and I can't wait to see you on tour again once all this is a bit died yeah. down and you're able to get out here and, and tour, because I say it again, that energy and that enthusiasm from the audience was so yeah. sort of gripping during that concert, oh, and I just absolutely adored it. So thank you oh, for no. meeting you in Hamburg again. Yeah and Thank inviting you. me because it gave me one of the great evenings in the last couple of years. <laughs> That's lovely. I'd say if I'm, when I'm doing one of the solo shows, what I do is I do like a complete record, then I do requests and bits and pieces. And I sometimes have guests that I talk to at some stage, maybe you'd be interested in doing that with me. I'd Come love to. Yeah. I'd yeah? love to, John. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. And I'll see you on tour. Thank you, Steve. Bye. Bye. We made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.